practical truth of Archibald Alexander, the misery of the lost. The soul of man is susceptible by an intense degree of unhappiness. Even in this world much misery is endured. But in the world to come hope is a stranger and there are no alleviating circumstances. The misery of the damned has by theologians been divided into that of loss and that of sense. The one produced by the loss of good possessed or once attainable, the other arising from the positive infliction of punishment. But though this distinction has a foundation as it relates to the cause of the sinner's misery, yet as it regards the feeling itself, there is no reason for making any distinction. All misery is felt according to its nature and intensity, and therefore is pain of sense or sensible pain, whatever may be its cause. So the question whether the fire of hell is a material fire is of no importance, for if I feel a pang of misery at any moment, it matters nothing whether it is produced by a material or immaterial, by a privative or a positive cause. Under the general name of misery, many species of suffering are included. All, however, agreeing in this, that the sensation is painful. The feeling of fear is a very painful emotion, but in its nature very different from remorse. Excessive pain in our present state may be experienced through the nerves of sensation, but even here these sufferings differ, not only in degree, but in kind. The headache, toothache, and lumbago are all severe pains, but they are not the same. These bodily pains differ exceedingly from the feelings of remorse or despair. Our capacity of pain seems to bear an exact proportion to our susceptibility of pleasure. Indeed, the same faculties and affections which are the sources of our happiness when the objects suited to them are possessed, become the causes of our misery when deprived of those objects. By the same faculty, we perceive the beauties and the deformities of objects. The same moral sense is the instrument of the most exalted and soul-satisfying pleasure, and of the most intolerable anguish of which a soul is capable. Every affection and appetite affords pleasure when duly exercised on its proper object, but deprived of this, it becomes a source of intense pain. Though the nature of future misery to all lost souls is the same yet, the degree may differ to an extent which no man can estimate. Some divines have maintained that the future happiness of the righteous will be equal as eternal life is a free gift of God, but none, I believe, have ever held that the punishment of the lost will be equal. The scriptures abundantly teach that every man will be judged according to the deeds done in the body. And as the sins of different individuals are immensely different in guilt, justice demands that their punishment should be proportioned to the demerit of the sinner. Our Savior most explicitly teaches this doctrine when he says, That servant who knew his master's will and prepared not himself shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who knew not his master's will and yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. The guilt of sin is not measured merely or principally by the external act, but by the light and advantages enjoyed by some above others. The difference between sins against light and sins of ignorance is a manner concerning which common sense gives a judgment consonant with the rule laid down by our Lord. It does not appear that the cities of Galilee, where Christ spent most of his time, and where he wrought most of his beneficent miracles, were remarkable for external acts of immorality, and yet their sins were greater than those of cities proverbial for their wickedness, and consequently their punishment would be greater. His words should never be forgotten. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethesda! 
For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Therefore I say unto thee, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment for, than for this city. These are words of awful import, and are as applicable to neglectors of the gospel and impenitent sinners now as to those devoted cities. Many, because their external conduct is decent and moral, persuade themselves that their punishment will be light. But in view of the word cited above, it will be far more tolerable for the vilest of the heathen than for them, if they continue in their impenitence and neglect of the great salvation. Certainly gospel neglectors, however decent in their external behavior, will sink very deep into the abyss of misery. Among these, however, there will be a great difference. Some, alas, who sin malignity against light will sink to the lowest gulf in hell. To describe the extreme misery of lost souls is painful both to the writer and the reader. If we should give way to our sympathies and compassionate feelings, we should not only exclude this awful subject from our discourses, but from our creed. Indeed, it must be acknowledged that it occasions a conflict to reconcile our reason to the reality of such intense and interminable sufferings as are described in the Word of God. Implausible arguments derived from the goodness of God might be constructed against the doctrine of so great future misery. But all such arguments would operate equally against the existence of sin and misery in this world, which, alas, are known too well to be facts which none can deny and of which every individual is a witness. When God speaks, reason and feeling should be silent. He knows what justice demands and what can be done consistently with his attributes, but man is of yesterday and knows nothing. Suppose a child, five or six years old, should undertake to sit in judgment on the acts of government and to decide whether its penal laws were just or unjust and whether capital punishments ought to be inflicted on murderers, or whether a war was just and necessary, who would expect a correct judgment from an infant? But such a child is better qualified to decide on the most complicated schemes of human policy than man to judge of the propriety of the divine administration. Impenitent men are apt to harden themselves against the awful denunciations of divine wrath contained in the Bible, and to cherish unkind feelings towards the ministers who bring out plainly and authoritatively the doctrine of the New Testament on this subject. It cannot be denied that some preachers denounce the terrors of the law against transgressors in a style and manner adapted rather to irritate than to convince. They speak almost as if they took pleasure in these awful threatenings, as if they had nothing to fear for themselves. No doubt many a zealous preacher has passed sentence on himself and has actually suffered those torments which he denounced against others. I am therefore disposed to present this subject in a light which cannot give offense. Instead of representing the danger to which others are exposed, I will make the case my own. It behooves me to tremble at the word of the Lord as much as others. And as I am a sinner, and therefore naturally subject to the penalty of the law, and liable to be misled by the deceitfulness of my heart to cherish false hopes, I will endeavor to realize to myself the feelings which I shall experience if it should be my unhappy lot to die out of the favor of God. It would seem that the first moment after death must be one of unparalleled misery. My first reflection would be, I am lost forever. 
Oh, hope of happiness and relief is gone from my miserable soul. The blackness of darkness is round about me. No ray of light dawns on my wretched soul. Despair, fell despair has now seized upon me and must blacken every prospect to all eternity. Well, in the world I could contrive to turn away my thoughts from this disagreeable subject. But now my misery like a heavy burden presses on me and is ever present. Go where I will, do what I will. Well, in the body and engaged in secular pursuits, I entertained a secret hope that there might be some mistake respecting the extreme misery of the damned, or that there might possibly be some way of escape not revealed. But now all these idle notions have fled like a dream when one awakes. I find hell to be no fable but an awful reality. I find that the preacher, so far from exaggerating the misery of the lost, had no adequate conception of the wretchedness of a soul cast off from God forever and doomed to dwell in everlasting burnings. Oh, horrible, horrible, I am then undone forever, undone. In all my former distresses I could cry for mercy, but now I have passed beyond the reach of mercy. For the sake of momentary enjoyments and worthless riches and honors, I have bartered away my soul. Accursed folly. What benefit can I now derive from those earthly pleasures and possessions that only serve as fuel to the flames which consume me? Oh, for one drop of water to cool my tongue, but for this I beg in vain. The time for prayer and for mercy has gone by, and my soul is lost, lost, lost. And through eternity I must expect no deliverance, no relief, nor even the slightest mitigation of my misery. Woe, woe, woe is me. It had been infinitely better for me never to have been born. If I had not enjoyed the offers of the gospel, if pardon and reconciliation had not been within my reach, and often urged upon me, my anguish would not be so excruciating. But this it is which wrings my heart with unspeakable anguish that I might have escaped all this misery. Had it not been for my own sin and folly, I might ere now have been in heaven. Others who heard the same sermons and belonged to the same family are now in Abraham's bosom while I am tormented in this flame. Oh, that I could cease to be, but to fly from existence is impossible. Her I am surrounded by wretches as miserable as myself, but their company rather aggravates and mitigates my soul's anguish. I am reproached and cursed by all who ever were led by my counsel or example into the ways of iniquity. They dreadfully scowl upon me, and the fins of the pit who were my seducers now combine to taunt me with my folly. They never had the offers of mercy. The merits of a dying Savior were never offered to them. They seem to entertain a malignant pleasure, if pleasure it can be called, in witnessing my extreme misery. Oh, wretched man, whither can I flee? Is there no possible escape from this prison of despair? Can no one ever pass the gulf which separates this dismal abode from the regions of the blessed? None, none! Oh, if there could be a suicide of the soul, how happy should I be to escape from existence and to plunge into the gulf of annihilation, which once seemed horrible to my apprehension, but now desirable. This would be an oblivion of all my misery, but in vain do I seek to die. Death flies from me. And here I see those deluded souls who by doing violence to their own lives vainly dreamed that they were escaping from misery. But alas, from a burden which with faith and patience might have been borne, they have leaped into the fiery furnace. They are now convinced of the dreadful sin and folly of suicide, but they cannot repeat the act here. May I hope that time will lessen the horrors and the anguish of my wretched soul. 
Will my heart so susceptible of the emotions of bitter anguish by degrees become less sensible to these piercing pains and be more able to bear up under this overwhelming weight of misery? The question can only be solved by experience. Let me ask someone who has been suffering for thousands of years. Here comes Cain, the first murderer, who is still known to have upon him the stain of a brother's blood. Suppose I speak to him. Tell me, fellow prisoner who has long endured the pains of this infernal prison, whether by long continuance these miseries become more tolerable. But why do I ask? The wretched fratricide is evidently writhing in keenest anguish. He is too miserable to speak, and too full of malignity to gratify anyone. His guilty stain of blood spot has not been burnt out by the fiercest fires of hell. No, see, he defies the Almighty. He blasphemes the God of heaven. He asks for no mitigation of his punishment now. His malignant, fiery spirit feeds on despair and challenges his avenger to do his worst. Oh, then I see there is a progression of wickedness even in hell. This is the most appalling prospect of all. An endless progression in sin consequently an increase instead of a diminution of misery through the endless ages of eternity. Another awful point in the existence of the dam will be the day of judgment. Great as is the misery of a lost soul when separated from the body, this is probably small when compared with the exceeding weight of misery which shall overtake it at the day of judgment. I must then endeavor to imagine what will be my feelings if I should be found on the left hand on that dreadful day. As here a large portion of our pleasures and pains are experienced through the body, I know no reason why it should not be so in the future world. Certainly the disembodied spirit is capable of none of these pains or pleasures. It seems reasonable to conclude, therefore, that the bodies of the dam will be so constructed as to be inlets to excruciating pains, as the bodies of the saints will be instruments of refined celestial pleasures. The person of the man is not complete without the body, and therefore the final sentence of condemnation will not be denounced until the body, the selfsame body, is raised from the dead and reunited to the soul that having been partners in transgression, they may be associated in enduring the condign punishment of the deeds done in the body. The state of the lost soul before the judgment may be compared to that of a criminal confined in prison waiting for his trial. Let me then imagine myself to have died unreconciled and impenitent. In an unexpected time I hear the sound of the trumpet, and as it is the last trumpet, so it will be the loudest. The departed spirits confined in prison shall hear it in their bodies long crumbled to dust, shall hear it, and I shall certainly hear that awful, deeply penetrating sound, and I shall come forth coerced by an irresistible power. I shall again be clothed with a body, but oh, what sort of a body! Among millions of millions I am forced to appear. Oh, what a terrible majesty in the judge, now coming with all his holy angels, now seated on his great white throne. Awful moment. The books are open. There are all my crimes of thought, word, and deed recorded, sins of omission as well as commission. Oh, for a hiding place under the rocks or cave, but no, I must appear, I must hear my sentence of condemnation and banishment. The misery of an age seems condensed in this moment. The tremendous sentence comes forth, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Imagination fails, I can write no more. Experience must teach the rest. 
The misery of the eternal loss cannot be adequately conceived, much less expressed. It cannot be exaggerated by any description, and this will be manifest if we consider what they know they have lost. All the good things which they enjoyed in this life they must leave behind. All their riches and honors and sensual pleasures are left at death. And for these there will be no substitute in eternity. The vicious cravings of the immortal soul will continue, but there will no longer be any objects to gratify them, for want of which, like some venomous creatures, when wounded, they will turn and prey upon themselves. A soul with its active powers and passions must be miserable if deprived of all objects suited to its gratification. We know scarcely any misery on earth more intolerable than a human being perishing for lack of bread or water. Hunger and thirst, if not seasonably gratified, are the sources of most excruciating pain. Now the soul can never lose its desire of happiness. How miserable then must it be when this insatiable desire meets with nothing to gratify it? It is strongly represented by our Savior in the case of the rich man in hell who cried for one drop of water and said, I am tormented in this flame. The soul of the sinner will be its own chief tormentor. It is possible that all the torment experienced in hell will be the natural consequence of sin. Malignant passions are in their very nature attended with misery. For as benevolent affections are beatific, so malevolent feelings are accompanied with misery. Here these malignant passions are held under restraint. And while we are in the body, there are instinctive natural affections which counteract the malevolent feelings which exist in the depraved heart. But in eternity, all restraint will be removed, and the native wickedness of the heart will act itself out. There are no natural affections there. All will be unmixed malice, envy, and wickedness. Let any moral agent who is totally depraved be abandoned to himself, and he must be miserable. His own passions will become his everlasting tormentors. He will carry a hell in his own bosom. But of all feelings of misery, none is so intolerable as remorse. The conscious or moral faculty, as it is the principal source of the most pure and sublime enjoyment to the righteous, so it is to the lost a scorpion which will forever sting the soul with inexpressible anguish. The consciousness of having done wrong, of having sinned against God, and of being the cause of its own destruction is a kind of hell as dreadful as any which we can conceive. The lost soul will forever have the conviction clearly impressed that it is its own destroyer and that heaven with all its joys has been lost by its own sinful folly and neglect. And the bitterest ingredient of all in the cup of misery is despair, black despair. Oh, if there was the most distant hope of release at some future period, it would mitigate the anguish of the suffering sinner, but despair admits of no alleviation. Men may here dream of a deliverance from hell after a long time of suffering, but the delusion will vanish as soon as they enter eternity. They will then find that the word of God, which denounced eternal destruction on impenitent sinners, was not a vain threat, that God will not spare the guilty, but will punish them with everlasting destruction. Oh, my soul, consider now how you will be able to endure such misery as must be experienced by all the lost but especially by those who have enjoyed the light of the gospel. Canst thou fortify thyself against all this misery? Wilt thou be able to endure it with patience? Only imagine your condition, millions of ages hence, still writhing in anguish, still belching out horrid blasphemies, still covered with the blackness of darkness, still without a ray of hope, not a moment seized during this long period. Oh, my soul, will you not make one vigorous effort to escape so great misery? Will you not strive to flee from the wrath to come? Life, eternal life, is still within your reach. Lay hold on the prize. Press on to the kingdom. 
take refuge in the cross, and you will be safe. The following tract, written for the American Tract Society by Dr. Alexander, is called The Day of Judgment. That a just God will render to every man according to his character and works is a dictate of reason. Conscience also intimates to every man when he sins that he deserves to be punished. And when we see or hear of great crimes committed by others, such as murders, perjuries, robbery, or treachery, we feel something within us demanding that such should receive condign punishment. But we see that the wicked are not always punished in this world according to their evil deeds. It seems reasonable, therefore, to expect that there will be a judgment after death. We are not left, however, to the mere dictates of reason on the subject. God in His Word has revealed in the clearest manner that there will be a day of reckoning at the end of the world. This day is appointed and will certainly come. It is not so certain that we shall ever see the sun rise again as it is that we shall see the day of judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is also appointed to act as judge on that day because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Acts 17.31. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or evil, 2 Corinthians 5.10. When this awful day will arrive is a profound secret, not revealed to any creature in the universe. But we know that it will come suddenly and unexpectedly on those who shall then be on the earth. As it was in the day of Noah and of Lot, so will it be in the day of judgment. Men will be pursuing their common worldly business and amusements without apprehension of danger when the sound of the last trump shall be heard. For the trumpet shall sound, and the Son of Man shall be seen coming in the clouds of heaven. The race of man shall not cease from the earth until that day comes. There will then be a generation of living inhabitants, probably very numerous in the world. These will never die as other men, but they will undergo a change equivalent to death and a resurrection. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, they shall be changed. But all they that are in their grave shall hear the voice of God, and shall come forth great and small. No sooner shall the trumpet sound than the scattered dust of unnumbered millions shall resume its proper place in every man. No matter where it lies or how widely it may have been scattered, one word of the Almighty God is sufficient to bring it to its place and animate it with a new life. The multitude which will then start up into life cannot be conceived, it will be so great. There will stand Adam and all his posterity. There will stand those who have lived before the flood and those who have lived since. There will be seen the ancient patriarchs, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the inspired prophets and apostles, there will appear kings, emperors, nobles, and their subjects, the learned philosopher and the ignorant multitude, ministers and their congregation, parents and their children, masters and their servants, all, all coming forward to the grand tribunal. Not one of our whole race will be absent from this great assembly. There, listener, shall you and I stand, trembling or rejoicing. It is useless to inquire where room can be found for so great a multitude to stand, for this will be a day of miracles. All the wonders ever exhibited before will be nothing to the wonders of that day. Indeed, all that is natural will end on that day, and everything will be miraculous. The sun will no longer rise and set, the moon no longer give her light, and the stars shall no longer appear in the firmament. 
Heaven will appear to have come down to earth, for the King of kings and Lord of heaven will be visible to all, with all his own glory and that of his Father. And all the holy angels will appear in attendance, standing round his throne, ready to execute his orders, whether of justice or of mercy. When all these things are prepared, when the judge has taken his seat on the tribunal, and all men are brought before him, the judicial process will begin, and the books will be open. What books these are, except one, which is the book of life, we are not informed. But we may be sure that one is the book of God's law, and another the record of human actions, which is in the book of God's remembrance. It is not necessary to think of more. These contain all that is necessary for conducting the trial of every man. The one contains the law, and the other the testimony. But everything will be conducted with the most perfect equity. Every man will be judged for his own deeds, and according to that knowledge of the law which he had opportunity of inquiring. The omniscience of the judge will enable him to estimate with perfect exactness all the circumstances of every action. Everything which aggravates guilt and everything which palliates it will have due consideration. They who lived under the patriarchal dispensation will be judged according to the light and advantages then enjoyed. They who lived under the Mosaical economy will be judged by the law of Moses. They who enjoyed the clear light of the gospel will be dealt with in a manner accordant to their advantages. While they who enjoyed no external revelation will be judged by with that law written on the hearts of all men. The things which shall be brought under the eye of the judge and exhibited to the view of the universe are all deeds done in the body, whatsoever a man hath done, whether good or bad. Every secret thing. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Ecclesiastes 12.14 Every idle word. I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Matthew 12.36 The thoughts of the heart shall also be made manifest. Every unholy desire, every proud, envious, or malicious thought, every secret purpose of iniquity, Every unhallowed temper, every rebellious and discontented and ungrateful feeling towards God and His government will be brought into judgment. And the inquiry will extend not only to positive acts, but also to omissions of duty. Great as is the number of the acts of wickedness, the catalog of omissions will be greater and not less criminal. The first sin of this sort which will claim the attention of the judge will be the omission to entertain and cherish right sentiments towards God. No more heavy charge will be brought against any individual on that day than that he neglected to love the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. This is a total violation of the first and greatest command and the foundation of all other iniquities. The neglect to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when he was offered to us a complete Savior in the gospel will to the unfruitful hearers of the word be an accusation of the highest kind. The heinousness and enormity of unbelief which now affects the consciences of men so little will on that day appear in a glaring light. It will not be strange if it should call forth reproaches upon the unhappy culprit from devils who never had a Savior provided and from heathen who never had a Savior offered to them. In that account which our Lord has given of the process of the judgment in the 25th chapter of Matthew, the neglect of kindness to the saints by visiting, comforting, and aiding them is the only thing mentioned. Whatever else then may be noticed, we are sure this will not be forgotten. The whole passage is so solemn and interesting that it deserves our deepest attention. 
when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the thrones of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, and fed thee? Or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them, On the left hand depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. And I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Matthew twenty five thirty one through 46 And let it be well considered that most of the sins which are mentioned in the discourses of Christ as a ground of condemnation are sins of omission. The slothful servant who prepares not himself is a wicked servant who will be cast into outer darkness. The man who wrapped his talent in a napkin and buried it is condemned out of his own mouth. For to him that knoweth to do good of any kind, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4.17 Many who prided themselves in their inoffensive lives and harmless behavior will find when the books are open a catalog of omissions which will startle them with horror and overwhelm them with confusion. And his actions externally good will then be examined by one who has a full view of the motives from which they proceeded and the end which the agent had in view is it not certain that many religious actions will appear then to have been mere hypocrisy? That many actions apparently just and benevolent were mere efforts of pride and selfishness? And that a life civil and blameless in the eyes of men was a mere cloak which covered a heart full of unclean lust? Our most intimate friends here will be astonished when they see our secret iniquities and wicked motives exposed to view. Crimes the most detestable will be found in the skirts of those who pass through life without suspicion. Oh, how many secret murders, perjuries, thefts, blasphemies, and adulteries will then be wrought to light. How much injustice, fraud, cruelty, oppression, pride, malice, revenge. The cries of the injured, the widow, and the orphan always enter into the ears of the Lord, and he now comes to avenge them. Cruel persecutors of God's church and people, though clothed in purple and almost adored when living in the world, will now be brought to a severe account. The blood of the martyred saints from beneath the altar has been long crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Revelation 6.10 
and now the day of retribution has arrived. What will be the length of time occupied with the judgment we know not? It is called a day, but it will differ exceedingly from all other days, and in its duration probably, as well as in other respects. Our wisdom is to attain to what is revealed and to repress the vain curiosity in regard to other manners. We may rest assured that the whole process will be wisely conducted and that complete justice will be done. The judge of all the earth will do right. He will not condemn the innocent, nor clear the guilty, and his judgment will be most impartial. There will be no respecting of persons. The king and the beggar will stand upon equal ground and will be judged by the same rule. Those who in this world were reviled and slandered and had no opportunity of clearing up their character will then be vindicated and lies and reproaches will have effect no more. But here a serious difficulty occurs. It may be said, if the law of God is the rule of judgment, and if all sins are brought into judgment, then certainly every human being must be condemned. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. According to this view, none can be saved. To remove this difficulty, let it be remembered that besides the book of the law, there is another book which will be produced there, written from the foundation of the world. This is called the book of life. This contains names, and they shall never be blotted out, of all those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These he has undertaken to present to God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. They will appear on that day clothed with righteousness of the Redeemer. The judge on the throne is their covenanted surety. He answers to every accusation made against them, but notwithstanding there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, notwithstanding none can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, yet they also shall be brought into judgment. When all things are prepared and the whole assembly is collected before the august tribunal, a separation will be made of the great congregation into two parts, the righteous and the wicked. The former will be placed on the right hand of the judge, and with them he will commence. But no sooner shall their numerous sins be brought to view than it will be made to appear that they are pardoned through the blood of Christ. When the books are opened, a long account will appear against them, but on the other hand it will be seen that the whole is freely forgiven through the riches of grace in Christ Jesus. But a most exact account will be taken of all their good works, and they will be mentioned to their honor and rewarded as though no imperfection had cleaved to them. The least act of kindness done to any of Christ's followers will be magnified and rewarded as if done to Christ himself. Even the giving of a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of a disciple shall not lose its reward. Persons in the lowest state, servants and slaves who perform their duty faithfully shall not be forgotten in that day. For whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Ephesians 6 eight. But they who suffered persecution and death for righteousness' sake will be most highly distinguished and most signally rewarded. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. They also who have labored much in promoting the Redeemer's kingdom will receive a reward proportioned to their works of faith and labors of love. But none who have done good shall fail of their reward. 
Everyone shall receive according to what he hath done, and everyone will be satisfied, for the lowest place and glory is a situation too dazzling for our present conceptions, and the whole is a manner of pure grace. These works considered in themselves deserve no reward, but it is the will of God that every holy desire, every good word and work, and the members of Christ's body should receive a mark of his favor to the honor and glory of him who is her head and who died for their salvation. When the gracious sentence, Come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world is pronounced, the righteous shall be caught up to the Lord and shall be seated by his side and be united with him in the remaining transactions of that great day. For it is written that saints shall judge the world and know ye not that ye shall judge angels. The case of the righteous being disposed of, then will come the awful transaction of pronouncing sentence on the wicked. They will indeed have anticipated the sentence. By this time they will be certain of their doom. But the scene itself will far exceed all apprehensions before entertained. To behold the face of inflexible justice turned towards him, to hear the irreversible sentence of condemnation, that too from the mouth of the benevolent Son of God, to feel in the inmost soul the justice of the sentence, to be as certain of everlasting damnation as they are of existence, are things concerning which we can speak now, but of which we can form but very feeble conceptions compared with the dreadful reality. In all his existence, there will probably be no moment in which a sinner's anguish will be so poignant as in this, when the judge shall say, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Every word in this tremendous denunciation will pierce through the soul with more insufferable pain than ten thousand daggers. It is reasonable to think that every person against whom it is pronounced will endure as much misery at that moment as in the nature of things is possible. And if this were all, the prospect would be appalling. But to be doomed to endless misery and fire with the devil and his angels? Who can bear the thought without horror and dismay? Yet as sure as God is true, will the sentence be executed on every impenitent sinner? Men may reason and cavil now, but then every mouth shall be stopped. That the cry of despair and horror will be heard through the great multitude is certain. Such a great and bitter cry as was never heard before. But it is all in vain. Repentance comes too late. The day of grace is forever past. The gospel dispensation is ended. This is the consummation of all things. No change in condition can ever be expected. They that are saved have their salvation secured by the oath and promise of God. They who are lost have their damnation sealed forever and ever by a judicial sentence which can never be revoked. And from the sentence there is no appeal. There is no higher tribunal to which the cause may be transferred. Neither can any resistance be made to the execution of the sentence. They who are now bold and daring in their blasphemies and rebellion will soon find that they are in the hands of a sin-avenging God. It will belong to the holy angels who are mighty in power to execute the sentence of the judge. So shall it be, said our blessed Savior, at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire where there shall be welling and gnashing of teeth, and it will be as impossible to escape as to resist. The rocks and the mountains will not cover them. They cannot cease to exist. Go where they will. God is there to execute deserved wrath upon them. 
They will therefore be obliged to go away into everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, 46. The devils and his angels will also be judged on that day. But of the particular nature of the trial we are not informed. All that we know is that the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude verse 6. They are now miserable, but their cup is not full. Therefore they cried out when they saw Jesus, Art thou come to torment us before the time? Matthew 8.29 at the breaking of this great assembly, the present system of the world will be destroyed. For the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Second Peter 3, 7. Listener, deeply fix in your mind the certainty and importance of the transactions of this last great day. Meditate upon it as a reality in which you have a momentous interest. Let every other day as it passes put you in mind of this in which all others will end. Consider also that it draws near. Every moment bears us on towards the great tribunal. Mockers may say, where is the promise of His coming? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also and all the works therein shall be burned up. O listener, whoever thou art, let me entreat you to inquire without delay whether you are prepared for the scrutiny and the judgment of this coming day. Have you made your peace with God? Have you repented of all your sins? Are you in union with Christ by faith? Have you any clear scriptural evidence that your sins are pardoned? What says conscience to these inquiries? Be assured if your own heart condemns you, God who is greater than your heart and knoweth all things will much more condemn you. But your situation is not like that of them whose day of grace is ended. You are yet in the place of reconciliation. You have yet a little time before you. God only knows how much. Now then, hear the voice of warning. Hear the voice of mercy. Now strive to enter in at the straight gate. Now forsake your sins and live. Accept the offered grace. Lay hold on eternal life. Let no consideration induce you to delay your conversion the importance of salvation, the uncertainty of life, the danger of provoking the Holy Spirit to abandon you. The example of thousands who have perished by procrastination should urge you to lose no time but to fall in with the gracious invitation of the gospel. But if you will refuse and prepare to meet an angry God, harden yourself against the terrors of the Almighty, summon all your fortitude to hear your dreadful doom from the judgment of the quick and the dead. But I forbear there is no fortitude or patience in hell. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.